Today's scripture focus is out of 1 Samuel 24, verses 3 through 11 and 16 through 22. When Saul came to the sheep's pens along the road, a cave was there, and he went to relieve himself. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave, so they said to him, Look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you so you can do to him whatever you desire. Then David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, as the Lord is my witness, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men and he did not let them rise up against Saul. Then Saul left the cave and went on his way. After that, David got up, went out of the cave, and called to Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David knelt low to his face to the ground and paid homage. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of the people who say David intends to harm you? You can see with your own eyes that the Lord has handed you over to me today in the cave. Someone advised me to kill you, but I took pity on you and said, I will not lift my hand against my Lord, since he is the Lord's anointed. Look, my father, look at the corner of your robe in my hand, for I cut it off, but I did not kill you. Recognize that I've committed no crime or rebellion. I haven't sinned against you, even though you were hunting me down to take my life. When David finished saying these things to him, Saul replied, Is that your voice, David, my son? Then Saul wept aloud and said to David, You are more righteous than I. For you have done what is good to me, though I have done what is evil to you. You yourself have told me today what good you did for me. When the Lord handed me over to you, you didn't kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go unharmed? May the Lord repay you with good for what you've done to me today. Now I know for certain you will be king, and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Therefore, swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David swore to Saul. Then Saul went back home, and David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Hellas Church. It's good to be with you today. My name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here and have the privilege of leading us through our study of God's word today. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to grab those and turn open to 1 Samuel chapter 24 to that passage that was read so well for us a moment ago by our friend Kristen. And you know, back in college, I lived with four guys in an on-campus apartment, and we had a television that didn't work very well. Oddly, uh, the buttons on the TV didn't work, so it could only be controlled uh, with the remote control. Now, we were a group of guys who liked to prank each other, and one day I walked into our living space, and I saw Kyle laying on the couch asleep, uh, taking a nap in the middle of the afternoon, and and I decided to seize that opportunity to, to mess with him. And uh, the remote control was kind of tucked under his pillow, so I snuck over there and I reached in quietly and, and gently grabbed it, pulled it away. And, and then I decided to turn the television on and I shift the channel to a religious program, a uh, religious television, and I turned the volume up as loud as the TV could go. And then I left and went to class and uh, brought the remote with me. And uh, not too long after that, uh, what he was hearing on the television began to influence his dreams. And then he woke up, uh, kind of freaked out, not sure what was going on. And he could not find the remote to turn it down or to change the channel. And, and uh, I came home a couple of hours later when class was over. And he was so disheveled uh, because it was just a really, really bad moment. I felt kind of bad afterwards because, you know, 
blaring religious programming for that long uh, in the house. It's, it's borderline torture, but, uh, but uh, I pressed on and I continued to do my thing with our roommates. Well, when you open up today's text and you find yourself in 1 Samuel chapter 24, David has an opportunity. There's an opportunity presented to him to kind of get the upper hand on Saul. Now, to be sure, he and Saul were not friends pranking each other. They were rivals who were locked in a conflict because Saul hated David and wanted to put David to death. In fact, at the start of this chapter, Saul takes 3,000 of Israel's strongest soldiers and he hunts David down, chasing him through the wilderness, as we have seen happen time and time again over the past few weeks. And at some point in time, in this kind of high-stakes game of cat and mouse, Saul stops at an ancient rest station, and he goes in to relieve himself in a cave. And little did he know, but David and his men were also in that cave, and it presented David a unique opportunity, an opportunity to get the upper hand on Saul. It seems as though Saul was being presented to him on a silver platter, and David could end all of his troubles right then and there. His men even said to David when this opportunity was presented, look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will, hand you, I will hand your enemy over to you so you can do to him whatever you desire. Now, there's no record of the Lord ever saying these words to David, but this was certainly a unique opportunity, a unique opportunity presenting itself to David, and David had to make a choice. And so what does he do? He gets up and he sneaks over to Saul, stealth-like, ninja-like, and he gets close enough to Saul that he's able to take his sword, which was apparently really sharp, and he cut a corner of Saul's robe off. And he managed to do all of that without disturbing Saul or, or giving his presence away to his enemy. Now, this wasn't a prank, like taking the remote to class and leaving the TV blaring and it wasn't a prank like going under the bleachers and trying to tie someone's shoelaces together. It, this was a moment where David decides to communicate something very significant and very important to this man who was chasing him through the wilderness. You see, earlier in the narrative of 1 Samuel, Saul had forfeited his right to be God's anointed king. His unbelief and his rebellious, proud heart uh, caused him to forfeit everything that the Lord intended to do through him. And when things kind of came to a head, the prophet Samuel approached Saul, and in order to tell Saul that the Lord was ripping the kingdom from his hand, the prophet ripped his robes in his presence. It was a gesture designed to tell Saul that God was taking the king from him. And so here you have another moment where another robe is ripped or another robe is cut. Only this time, David is cutting it, and there is the symbolism behind the power of the kingdom shifting from the hands of Saul to the hands of David. And when David cut this robe, this is what he was proclaiming. But there seems to be a problem, because right after David does this, his conscience disturbed him. His conscience bothered him. David came under some sense of guilt, some sense of conviction. He was ashamed of what he had done because in that moment, he sought to communicate this message not in response to the hand of God working in that moment, but in response to something that he himself did with his own hand in cutting Saul's robe. 
And you look at verse 5, it says, Afterwards, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. It seems, it seems that David lost sight of the fact that the kingdom wasn't his to take, but the kingdom was only and always God's to give. And by trying to take it here, it seems that David was giving in to the temptation to expedite his journey to the throne. That if he takes the kingdom now, if he takes Saul out, he could avoid a lot of future suffering. Life for him would have gotten a lot easier much more quickly. And it seems that the men who were with David in the cave agreed, and so they wanted him to take Saul out. So you look what they say, what David has to say to his men. He says, I swear before the Lord, I swore before the Lord, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. And then there's this phrase, with these words, David persuaded his men. Now, the word persuade is soft. The word translated persuade literally means to rip apart. So you have this moment where David has a chance to take his enemy out. His men want him to do so because that would make their lives a lot easier too. They would be able to go home early and stop living as fugitives. They could sleep in a warm bed, eat a home-cooked meal. They're no longer hiding in caves. And so they wanted David to go through with ripping the kingdom from Saul's hands. And so when David's conscience bothered him, he said, no, we got to stop this. This isn't the way God wants us to go. And so he, and so he gives, them a, gives them a Bob Knight halftime speech of sorts. Up against Saul. So David put the brakes on in this moment because his conscience was disturbed. Now, a disturbed conscience is something every follower of Christ has sensed and experienced at some point in time. And I want you to know that a disturbed conscience is a gift of grace. It's a gift of grace in a given moment that we must not ignore. When such an alarm begins to sound in the soul, it makes us aware of the fact that our attitudes or our actions are not honorable that they do not correspond with a life of faith that trusts in the Lord, not just in what the Lord promises to do for us, but the way the Lord promises to work in our lives. See, God had promised to give David the throne, and he never commanded David to take it. He never commanded David to take out or kill Saul for it. And so you have in David's disturbed conscience a temptation that I think is very familiar to all of us who are following Christ. That we are often tempted to try and to expedite God's will in our lives, to speed things along. That at times we try to take what God has promised to give, not trusting his timeline or trusting the process that he has set before us to follow towards the fulfillment and the acquisition of what he hopes to give. I remember when the Lord called me to pastoral ministry in the summer of 2001, immediately I wanted to start serving the church. I wanted to start serving as a pastor. But the opportunities at that time were not there as I thought they should have been. And so there were several days when I was just frustrated and faithless, many days when I was irritable and bitter. 
Peers of mine were moving forward in pastoral directions, and I felt like I was being left behind. Ten years passed before the Lord actually gave me the opportunity to serve him as a pastor of a local church. And during those 10 years, I did a lot of things. I had to grow in lots of ways. I I found myself working as an assistant to a guy named David Platt, and I would spend many days uh, alone in a media room assembling uh, CD packets of teaching series that this incredible teacher of God's Word had been putting together. And I would assemble all of that, getting it ready to ship out. It was before the world of MP3s and streaming and all those dynamics. And And then not long after that, I found myself working as an assistant to a guy named Tony Marita at a school in New Orleans. And and I would bring coffee to various voices who were coming to the school to speak to the student body and to deliver these uh, messages to students. And meanwhile, classmates were being asked to pastor churches. and, And I felt overlooked. I felt unseen. There were many days whenever I just tossed and turned with irritation, with faithlessness and frustration just kind of spilling out of my heart until eventually the Lord did give me the opportunity to pastor here with the Hallows. And I remember when all of this began to start, and I took some time to reflect upon what the Lord had been doing in my life for the past 10 years, and as I was just kind of praying through some of my lingering frustrations and and the delays that I felt were there... I sensed the Lord just kind of impress upon me this thought when the Lord just seemed to whisper whisper to my soul, Andrew, I loved my people too much to let you lead them too early. And there was a lot of work that needed to be done in my heart before sliding into this opportunity and have the privilege to serve God's people as a pastor. You see, what we must keep in mind when it comes to God's promises in our lives is that what God promised is promises to do in us is not just for us. What God promises to do with our lives impacts and is intended for those that one day we will have the opportunity to serve. And so if you're following Jesus right now in a situation that isn't enjoyable, one that isn't uh, one that you thought you would be in right now, let me encourage you that whether to consider who the Lord may have you serve right now and how the Lord is working in you today to prepare you for tomorrow. That may be the case, whether you, as you think about your coworkers at at that job you hate, or you think about peers in a life stage that you hoped to have left behind by now, or you think about classmates in a college that you did not want to go to, but it turned out to be your only option. How are you maximizing the moment, trusting the Lord, not just in what he promises to give, but in the purposes and the ways that he intends to give it. You see, the Lord paints his purposes on a broad canvas, and he uses all sorts of colors. He uses bright colors, and he uses dark colors. And at this stage in David's life, he's surrounded by men who needed to see in him an example of someone who believed not just in what God promised, but who was willing to trust the way God purposed to give. That is, someone who would trust the timeline of God, someone who would trust the provision of God, someone who would trust the course that the Lord set out for him to walk. Now, at the end of David's journey and at the end of this path, he would step onto the throne and he would become the king of Israel, but his path to the throne would be marked by many thorns. 
It would be a hard road, a difficult word, a challenging road. And so David's conscience in this moment would not let him take prematurely what God had promised to give. His conscience checked him in the glass and he stopped and he considered what the Lord was doing and he pulled back saying, look, the kingdom isn't mine to take. The kingdom is God's to give. Now, when his conscience disturbed him, he listened to it, and that resulted in a type of humble confession that he would give even to his enemy, Saul. So that when Saul got up and he left the cave, David followed him outside, and he cried out to him, and he began to speak these words. David bowed before Saul and said, why do you listen to the words of the people who say, look, David intends to harm you? You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. Someone advised me to kill you, but I took pity on you and said, I won't lift my hand against my Lord since he is the Lord's anointed. And then just as I would hold up the remote to my friend Kyle when I came back from class to show him that I I got him, David would hold up the corner of Saul's robe and he would show Saul that he could have taken him out. He could have killed him. He could have wiped all of his troubles away and And he held up this corner of the robe to show him that he could have, but he did not. Instead, David chose mercy. He chose kindness. Even though that act of mercy and that act of kindness would prolong his sufferings in the world that is. And then notice what David does next. He begins to appeal to the Lord's judgment. He says, may the Lord judge between me and you and may the Lord take vengeance on you for me. But my hand will never be against you. May the Lord be judge and decide between you and me. May he take notice and plead my case and deliver me from you. What he's doing there is he's submitting his situation to the Lord, trusting the Lord to handle the beef between him and Saul, believing that in the end, the Lord would do what is just. The Lord would do what is right. He's appealing to what we call the doctrine of justice or the doctrine of divine judgment. Now, the doctrine of justice and the doctrine of judgment provides you and I with the resources we need to avoid making bad decisions or bad situations worse because we choose to fight fire with fire. It's this doctrine, it's this realization that enables you and me to turn the other cheek. It's what enables us to let things go. It's what helps us choose to bless those who may be persecuting us or coming against us. It's recognizing that the Lord is going to set everything right in the end. We don't have to feel the pressure to set everything right in the here and now. That we don't have to become vigilante Christians who are seeking to shame, to shun those who wish us harm. That we can walk the way David does here because he himself is a foretaste of the way Jesus would walk when he steps onto the scene in Galilee. It's this doctrine that reminds you and I that we can live above the fray of cancel culture. We don't have to sweat that ridiculous development in our society because God's people can never be canceled. The Lord will never forget our name. He will never lose sight of where we are. God will be good to his people forever and always because he gets the final say. He gets the final word in our lives, so it doesn't really matter what others might say or what other words are spoken. The Lord's word is eternal. And so knowing that, we don't have to take matters into our own hands. 
We don't have to allow other people's sin to solicit sinful responses from us. This is what David is doing here. He's surrendering this moment to the Lord. I think about a time in high school when there was a guy who didn't like me very much, believe it or not, and and he often tried to fight me, and he often tried to talk other people into fighting me and coming at me at different places and in different ways. And I remember one night we were at a party, and, and there was another guy there who got really, really drunk. And he was really drunk, and so this antagonist came up to him and began to whisper lies in his ear. He was trying to manipulate him to come and to, and to cause a scene by, by coming at me and At the time, I was a senior in high school, and the Lord had been at work in my life, and I sensed God's activity in my life in various ways, and I was moving out of that scene. I didn't want to be a part of that scene anymore, but eventually that guy got in my face, and and he was being pushed into me by the main antagonist and coming at me, so I, I kind of stepped back, and I put my hands in my pockets, and I refused to engage because I knew that if I engaged in that moment, it would just make a bad situation worse. It was clear that this guy was being manipulated by my enemy, so to speak. And and this guy was doing things that deep down I knew he didn't really want to do. And then I heard the other guy say, hey, hey, don't worry, I got your back. And then he lifted up his shirt and he showed a little pistol that was hanging on his side. And and I sat there kind of stunned and knowing that this situation could unravel in a in a crazy way. So I just kind of put my hands in my pockets again, and I stepped back. I turned, and I walked away. Eventually, I soon left the scene altogether. A couple of days later, the guy, the the drunk guy, walked up to me at school, and with tears in his eyes, he just began to apologize for everything that had went down and for the situation that had, had unfolded. And then he thanked me profusely for not engaging. He thanked me for walking away and And he asked me why I didn't. Why didn't I move in that moment? Why didn't I engage in that moment? And I provided a wonderful opportunity to share with him the story of what the Lord was doing in my life. And I began to speak about Jesus and what Jesus did in situations like that and turning the other cheek and trusting the Lord to shake everything out in the end. And and it was a remarkable moment of being able to share this aspect of how the gospel applies, this difference that Jesus makes in our lives in that moment with a guy who was overwhelmed by the fact that I walked away. So I think about 1 Peter chapter 2 where we read these words, for you are called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And this is the way of the Christian, because this is the way of Jesus. This is the way that David is embodying in 1 Samuel chapter 24, trusting himself to the one who judges justly. And so David's humble confession in this moment, it did have an impact on Saul. It struck an emotional chord in his enemy, so much so that Saul began to cry. And he proceeded to confirm David's righteousness in that moment. Listen to what he says. Saul would say this to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have done good to me, though I have done what is evil to you. 
You yourself have told me today what good you did for me. When the Lord handed me over to you, you didn't kill me. Now, such an act was unheard of at the time. The world they lived in was, a, was an eye-for-an-eye world. It wasn't a turn-the-other-cheek world. So what David is doing here was utterly foreign. In that world, you, met, you didn't meet hostility with mercy. You met hostility with more hostility at David. David went a different way. He went the way that Jesus would later champion when he steps onto the scene in the world and he would command his followers to turn the other cheek and he would command his followers to love their enemies and he would command his followers to bless those who would persecute them. And then Saul would go on to say to David, now I know for certain you will be king and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. But then he goes on and he asks to be treated in a way that he did not deserve. Saul asked to be treated in a way that he did not deserve because he himself did not necessarily treat other people like this. He says in verse 21, Therefore swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. Now, this was a rather bold request for him to make because a few chapters earlier, he wiped out a priest and most of that priest's family. Only one survived when he, when he came at the priest who had helped David in his desire to flee Saul and to escape his hand. And, and yet now he's asking to be treated in a way that he himself had never treated anyone. And I wonder how common and I wonder how familiar that dynamic is in our own souls. How common it is for us to want to be treated in ways that we ourselves are not willing to treat others. We all want to be treated better than we deserve. We all want more more mercy from others than we are willing to give others. We all want to be forgiven while we are withholding forgiveness from others. You know what that's called? That's called hypocrisy. It is hypocritical for you and I to want something from others that we are not willing to give to others. This was Saul's issue in this moment. But notice how David responds. In kindness, David complies, and he swears to Saul that he would not wipe out his descendants. Now, to be sure, this was a promise he had made earlier to David, to Saul's son, Jonathan. And so he swears, he says, okay, I will treat you better than you deserve. And you would hope that that decision would have a life-changing impact on Saul's heart. And we're told right after the conversation that Saul went back home, but David and his men went up to a stronghold. Now, to be reassured is one thing, but to be stupid is another. And so David still went to the stronghold, even though he kind of had this moment with Saul, and because he knew that some time needed to pass to see whether or not Saul's heart really changed. To see whether or not that mercy and that grace that he had shown Saul, if it was going to have an impact. So rather than just going home and being vulnerable to Saul's future attacks, he goes to a stronghold and he hides there a little bit longer, allowing some time to pass. And as you keep reading through 1 Samuel, the following chapters will reveal that Saul didn't experience a, a change of heart. Because not long after this, Saul continues to try to hunt David down. He continues to try to kill God's anointed, future anointed, his anointed future king. You see, it's possible for you and I to be moved by mercy without being changed by it. 
There was a guy by the name of George Whitfield who stands as one of the most powerful gospel preachers in the history of the church. He was a catalyst in what was known as one of the first great awakenings, a a revival movement that swept through our country in the 18th century, and Whitfield's voice loomed louder than most during that time. Hundreds and thousands of people would turn out to hear him share the gospel and to proclaim the mercy of God to them. Everywhere he went, people just flocked to listen. And many people were moved by his words every time he spoke. And after these huge moments, people would often walk up to him and ask, hey, how many people, how many people uh, came to faith? How many people put their trust in Jesus? How many lives were changed as a result of this moment? And Whitfield would give the same answer every time. He says, well, why don't you ask me in a year? Ask me in a year because only time will tell. Only time will tell whether or not we are being moved in a moment or whether or not we're being changed for eternity. This was David's point. This was Whitfield's point. And this is what we are going to see happen in Saul's life. A guy who seemed moved but not changed, as later he would revert back to his efforts to kill David again and again. And so what we have here is a is a contrast between Saul and a contrast between David, both men whose consciences are disturbed. Whereas Saul would come to ignore his conscience to the point when he would grow increasingly insensitive and contribute, which would all contribute to his demise in the end, David refused to ignore his disturbed conscience. He paid attention to it. He listened to it. He received it as a gift of grace and responded with the type of humble confession that leads to lasting change. And we know he did because years later, David would welcome Saul's crippled grandson, Mephibosheth, to his dining table, and he would receive him into the royal arena, blessing the grandson of his enemy, keeping the promise that he had made. You see, David had experienced firsthand how the Lord treats people according to the promises he makes. And even though David's road to the throne was rough and rugged, David was given the kingdom according to the promise and the purpose of God. And looking back on his life when all was said and done, I doubt David would have had it any other way. That in the wilderness near En Gedi, he refused to take the crown without first bearing the cross. Trusting not just what God promised to give, but the way God purposed to give it. And years later, David's descendant, a guy by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, he too would do some things, he too would do some very similar things. There was a moment at the start of Jesus' ministry when we're told the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And there he would meet his adversary. There he would meet his enemy as the devil would come and tempt him in different ways. And one of the keynote temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness was the temptation to expedite his journey to the throne, to avoid the cross, to avoid suffering. Check it out. Matthew chapter 4, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to them, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Translation, trust the Lord, not only in what he promises to give, but in the way he purposes to give it. This was Jesus' response. 
Jesus understood that before wearing the crown, he must first bear the cross. For what God was doing in his life wasn't just for him. What God was doing in his life involved everyone who would be served by him in the future. And there was purpose in his sufferings. There would be purpose in his crucifixion where he would go and die so that our sins may be forgiven. So that our lives may be reconciled to our God. And so Jesus' righteousness would be confirmed time and time again as he resisted the temptation to expedite his journey to the throne. He would resist multiple temptations over the course of his days to step out of the path that the Lord set for him to walk, even when he stepped into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prays three times, Father, if there is any other way, let it be so, only to hear the Father say, no, this is the only way. And Jesus would come to a moment where he would listen to the, his father in that moment, and he would surrender his life to the point of death, even death on the cross. And you come to Philippians chapter 2, we're told that for this reason God highly exalted Jesus and gave Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. The righteousness of Jesus being confirmed as he would go to the cross and give up his life three days later to be raised from the grave. And the Heavenly Father confirming everything that's true about Jesus, everything that we believe about Jesus, everything that we love about Jesus. Let me ask you, how does your heart respond to such mercy? How does it respond to such kindness, knowing that you and I on most days are a lot like Saul? That we are a lot like Saul and that we fight against the Lord's anointed king. We want to be in control. We want to continue to rule our own lives so we resist the Lord's anointed one. Yet even while we resist and even while you and I are still yet sinners, Christ would die for us. He would give us a mercy that we did not deserve. He would show us a grace that we did not earn. Refusing to retaliate when sinners like you and I would strike him on the face and nail him to the cross. All because Jesus knew what God had promised to give sinners and sufferers like you and me. All because Jesus knew that God's promise would be fulfilled through the purpose of his crucifixion and his death. And so he would go to the cross, not stepping out of the path, not usurping the Father's timeline, trusting the Lord at the point of death, even death on a cross. So you think about how your heart is responding to such kindness. How does it respond to such mercy? If you find your conscience being disturbed, are you ignoring it or are you listening to it? Are you ignoring it and still choosing to go your own way or are you listening to it so that it brings you to a point of humble confession where you acknowledge where you are wrong, where Jesus is right, and you change course? You pull the brakes on the opportunity to make a bad situ situation worse. You pull the brakes on steps that you've been taking that moves you in the wrong direction. And you return to the course of Christ. You return to the path of God. You return to trusting not only what God promises to give to his people, but the way he purposes to give it.
even if that includes you taking some hits along the way, even if it requires you turning the other cheek and refusing to retaliate, not seeking vengeance, avoiding treating people who are different from you or who who do not like you in ways that they are treating you or the ways that they are approaching you, going a different way, going a better way, going Jesus' way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace as we consider the truth of your gospel and the promises that you have given us and the promises that find their yes in Christ, in his crucifixion and in his resurrection. Would you help us even now to trust you, to give what you have promised and to trust you in the way that you will give? Holy Spirit, would you prevent us from trying to expedite your will in our lives, and would you give us grace to surrender, to submit, to trust, to walk by faith the course and the path that you have put before us to walk. God, I ask and I pray that you would do that now in Jesus' name. Amen.